Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. So welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Sarah Cossum about work and alienation in the platform economy, Amazon and the power of organization. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this uh, is, is a fascinating book. Um, it, it's a great academic book, but also it, it's one of those books that um, is incredibly kind of relevant and important uh, to the moment. Um, in which we find ourselves. And it, it, it's funny with academic books because obviously they take a while to write. Um, but I think it's it's really great that you've written something that really speaks to kind of, you know, today and, and, and to where we are uh, now, both um, academically, but but also, you know, kind of politically and, and in terms of broader social issues. I guess the place to start with the book, and this will introduce, I, I think, the moment that we're in is this idea of, of the platform economy um, and I, you know, the kind of clue is in, in the title of the book. I wonder if you could say a bit about um, what you mean by the platform economy and, and I guess kind of crucially, like why you've ended up studying it too. So I'm quite fascinated with, uh, you know, or fascinated by developments in our world today and developments really in a holistic sense. So in political, economic terms, in societal terms, and also technologically. Um, and I feel like that really comes together in the platform economy. Now, nowadays, it feels like everywhere we look, we hear of the platform economy. It's dropped quite often also in the media. And it makes us think of these companies that are, you know, Airbnb and Amazon and Facebook or now Meta and Google and how they've just become part of our social lives and really embedded in our daily lives. And the way that we could define platforms or how the definition that I apply in this book is essentially their function in mediating the sale of a product or of a service. So for example, you know, if you're an Uber driver, then it's about driving a person from one from one place to another place. So that would be sort of the service that's being mediated here. And central to it is how the internet is used for this mediation. So that's where the technology comes in. And what's really fascinating is by taking a glimpse or once we start studying the platform economy, it really sheds light on some different dynamics that are unfolding on the labor labor market, some of them old, but some of them new as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the book does that so well, actually thinking about um, some very old ideas, actually, and, and some really kind of classic um, frameworks and theories from political economy um, to, to, to understand what, what's happening today. And I guess, actually, you know, you mentioned Uber as, as one of the examples, but, but the other thing going on in the book's title is Amazon. Um, and this is like almost the sort of the ultimate example of, of what a platform economy uh, organization is in, in, in so many different ways. And I guess, is that why you picked it or were, were there other kind of, you know, sort of interesting dynamics that you wanted to study with the example of Amazon? I think Amazon is such a fascinating example because 
nowadays you can really drop the name and people will will know what you're talking about. I remember at the beginning when I would go to a conference, people would ask me, do you mean Amazon the rainforest? But that answer actually started, you know, uh, not being the first answer anymore, just because of how Amazon has come to dominate e-commerce um, and really also spread across the world. Now, what's fascinating about Amazon is that it represents so many different platform models at the same time. So not all platforms are organized and organize workers in the same way. So on the one hand, you know, it can be location-based or web-based, meaning in the case of the Amazon warehouses, I need to go into the warehouse to work. And web-based would then be the example of Amazon Mechanical Turk. So it means I do these online micro tasks from behind my screen and I could be located anywhere in the world. So already the, the nature of the platform is different, but also the way I would be paid uh, would be fundamentally different because in one case, you know, I get this fixed hourly wage as in a warehouse. And in the other case, I get paid by gig, which is really quite dominant in the platform economy. And then so by really taking the case of Amazon, I could shed light on all the different or two, at least two of the ways and models that it has that are quite representative of the platform economy. Yeah, and actually we're, we're going to dig into a couple of the um, things you've mentioned there, things like, you know, kind of gig-based work, um, the role of tech and sort of transformations of, 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 of tech and its relationship to work. But before that, uh, I'd mentioned, you know, the kind of classics from political economy that you were drawing on. And and two of those come with, with the book's theoretical framework. One is this um, idea of the power of resources approach uh, to kind of studying um, Amazon and, and actually work uh, and society more, more generally. And the other is this conception of, of alienation. So I wonder if you could introduce those two elements um, of the book's framework. So the main idea behind the book um, was to really be able to dive onto the shop floor level to understand the working conditions, maybe conditions that also undermine labor organization and workers coming together, but at the same time to really emphasize that even if counteracting conditions exist and workers may be alienated, because that is sort of the theme under capitalism, that doesn't mean that they don't have agency. That would be a quite you know, deterministic uh, perspective that would strip them of that agency. So on the one hand, I do turn to Marx and his work of the economic and philosophical manuscripts of 1844 as a way to approach the shop floor level. So he speaks of four different dimensions of alienation. One is to uh, the labor activity, labor's product, species being, and fellow humans. Now put simplistically, what this essentially means is number one, what kind of work am I doing and am I really in control of that work? That would be the labor activity. We can you know, study more closely, for example, the division of labor. Can I be moved around somewhere else? Can I be replaced? How is my work evaluated? What kind of surveillance mechanisms am I exposed to? Labor's product would really be that product itself and would make us reflect more on what is my role within the capitalist system? Am I producing something? Am I circulating something? Um, am I, again, going back to the division of labor, am I just contributing a part of it or all of it? And who does it go to? Then with species being, it allows us to take a step back and reflect on, you know, how does work nowadays come 
to absorb different dimensions of our existence beyond work so that, you know, whenever we're outside of work, we're still talking about work, we're still feeling the pressure of work. Um, and maybe that takes away time from, you know, something else that feels fulfilling to us or something that would be uh, allow us to be more creative if our work, you know, uh, does not, for instance. And then finally, that relationship to fellow humans is a way to um, to reflect on how we perceive others. Do we perceive them as fellow workers? Do we perceive them as competition? And this also then sheds light on, you know, to what extent do we observe solidarity at the workplace that could then lead to collective organization or the other way around. So studying work culture is a big hint to that. So essentially what I like to, or what I am examining in the book is how these different, these four different dimensions of alienation come together in these different case studies, alienating workers on the one hand, but then how workers actually, you know, navigate these conditions to express their agency. But just like with alienation, you know, it's a big abstract idea. The question is, how do we actually systematically study this? One way to systematically study agency is through the power resources approach. So we have four different main power resources that I study, according, of course, to the works of other scholars such as Beverly Silver and Eric Olin Wright. Um, and the four power resources I look at are the structural power, the associational power, the institutional power, and the societal power. And in a similar way to alienation, these also, you know, work together. They co-evolve. If one is strengthened, this can have an effect on the others. And if one is weakened, it can also affect the others. Now, structural power is essentially uh, the foundational power resource because it goes back to your position in the capitalist system. So on the one hand, it consists of the marketplace power. So how much, let's say, how high in demand am I as a worker on the labor market? Um, you know, am I a low-wage worker or a high-wage worker? Can I easily be replaced on the labor market? Because if I am, then, well, if I, let's say, I am high in demand, it means that maybe my ability to leverage my employer is higher uh, because I can't be so easily replaced. However, we still have a second element which is the workplace power. And the interesting thing is just because the marketplace power is weaker doesn't mean that my workplace power is also weak. Because if we think back about the biggest uh, industrial actions that have happened, these have happened also in factories, where perhaps on the labor market, I'm not the most, uh, I'm not considered high skilled or of high wage, but strikes is the way we study this, can be extremely effective in leveraging the employer. And we're seeing this really unfolding once again, you know, historically it's been central, but once again, unfolding across the world. So that's really the structural power. The associational power is how do we come together as workers in a collective unit? Historically, this has been through unions, but it must not be through unions. It can also be, you know, can be traditionally, it can be alternatively. Um, institutional power would refer to sort of my institutional framework what rights uh, do we have? What can we push for? We can examine this through collective bargaining agreements and works councils. And finally, societal power allows us to take a step back and see how this, let's say, this cause for the labor struggle can become a wider cause that society is standing behind. So on the one hand, it could be discursively that we see more and more articles like we see nowadays talking about strikes, talking about 
the precarious times we live in, but also has that dimension of coalitional power. So who's standing on that side of workers to grow it into a larger movement in society? You know, it could be NGOs, it could be uh, politicians, it could be a wide range of different actors. And the idea is then by looking at these two parts, essentially the relations of alienation, but also these different power resources, we can get a more holistic understanding of how sort of work informs our collective organization, but also how we push back against this through also, of course, building solidarity and having those class interests. I mean, I, I think that's a wonderful overview of, you know, some of those classic ideas. And, and also you've introduced how you take them, almost update them, you know, uh, apply them in, in new ways. Um, and obviously this is through the case study of, of Amazon. And you've, you've mentioned a, a sort of an introduction uh, to, to Amazon already. So I, I suppose we, we don't need to do too much on that. But what, one thing the book does do is, is try and situate Amazon in a particular moment. And it argues that we're into the kind of third generation of um, platforms, you know, moving into what um, you, you've mentioned already is, is the kind of the gig-based um, economy of the platform and, and it might be useful to, to kind of hear a bit about Amazon's evolution because obviously you know for, for some people uh, they might think of it as oh this is an organization that like delivers books you know that I could go to a pretty sort of ropey website 20 years ago and get a book delivered right the way through now to this sense of Amazon being part of the infrastructure of the internet that is radically, you know, kind of reshaping or helping us to sort of rethink what work itself is. So, so what's the evolution of the company before we get into uh, the actual experience of workers? So the central thing is when we're approaching Amazon, going back to my point, as you've highlighted, is that it represents so much of what the platform economy is today. Now, Amazon, as any other, uh, you know, corporation, or any player in the economy essentially evolves alongside these wider conditions of the time. So it means the political economic conditions, the technological conditions, and the societal conditions. And I think it's really important to emphasize that it always is unfolding and developing within a certain context because it allows us to understand, you know, it developed in a certain way, but it must not have developed in that way and it could develop differently. And this allows us once again to underline that workers have their agency to also, you know, influence in which direction it is developing. Now, to categorize the platform economy and Amazon, I have found it helpful to really, as you've highlighted, to mention it in certain moments in time and, and, and place, essentially. So Amazon, and I use this term of a first generation platform, started off as precisely that. It was meant to be. Uh, an online bookstore starting off with by solely selling books and mediating that sale through the internet, right? This is what happened in the 1990s. And the interesting thing is, although Amazon has developed and evolved since then, this is really the core of the business. And what do I mean by that? So while this happened as a first generation platform or developed as a first generation platform within the era, you know, of the dot com boom, where we were really excited about investing in the internet as the future. Um, we then had that dot com bubble burst. And, you know, 
that frenzy that existed in the 90s, that changed. Um, but at the same time, you had more people connecting to the internet. So the user base is growing and it's also growing beyond uh, beyond certain countries, beyond the global north. And what we see with Amazon is while it, you know, the center of its business is really the e-commerce platform, as it was growing, it needed additional platforms. It initially created these ideas for its own internal use, but then realized that, well, we could make a profit by rolling it out. And one of these is, uh, you know, the second generation platform, uh, Amazon Web Services, which is the, um, you know, it has monopolized cloud service platforms. And this is, I think, also hinting back to what you said about really operating the very infrastructure of the internet. I always tell people, you know, take a moment out of your day and browse on Amazon Web Services how many companies that you know and how many platforms you know actually operate via Amazon Web Services because it's really quite fascinating to see how it's running that infrastructure. So essentially, this was developed because it was growing as an e-commerce platform and needed more cloud space, but then it rolled that out to the public. And in the same way, Amazon realized, for instance, that reviews could be posted twice, that book covers maybe aren't actually the correct book covers. So it needed something or let's say someone to double check these things. And as it is historically, labor power tends to be the cheapest way to do this. So it, was do it started doing this through outsourcing via Amazon Mechanical Turk. So essentially, Amazon Mechanical Turk was also developed for its own internal use. And then it was rolled out to now be a digital labor platform where anyone across the world you know, could labor a task as an independent contractor. Um, now, this is really the second generations of platform. But interestingly enough, although gig platforms and this web-based work uh, wasn't quite spread at the time, we could actually say that Amazon Mechanical Turk was one of the forerunners in this. Now, it's really after the economic crisis of 2006 and 2008 that we see the political economic conditions resulting in, you know, um, precarious times, unemployment, and so forth, so that gig platforms were more and more presenting themselves as this is a way to make money. And um, especially for if, if people had lost their jobs or needed an additional source of income, this was presenting itself as you can be flexible and make an income. But of course, as a gig platform, it means you're not directly hired and don't have the benefits and wages secured and so forth. Now, interestingly enough, while we can think of, you know, Uber, as I've mentioned earlier, or food delivery platforms as developing in this time, we see that Amazon itself is also, you know, evolving with these times. And one example is Amazon Flex, where people, depending on the country you're in, because it's not available in every country, you could pretty much, uh, you know, become someone who's delivering Amazon packages, kind of like an Uber, uh, an Uber driver, but an Amazon delivery, uh, delivery person. So that way we can really see how Amazon is always evolving along with the wider conditions through different generations and it still always centers back to its e-commerce platform, but at the same time allows it to really expand its ecosystem and power. So what's it like to actually be involved in this? What's it like to be uh, the worker? So one thing I'm, I was struck by when you get into thinking about Amazon's warehouses is updating the idea of the factory that produces something 
to the warehouse that circulates things. Um, and as part of that kind of lived experience, you bring in this sense and, and actually senses is probably the right uh, word of alienation um, in the warehouse. So what, what's going on? What is working life like? And where does your understanding of alienation figure um, in your analysis of the warehouse? So the best way to really imagine the warehouse is almost as if it was, you know, a factory brought into the 21st century. And instead of producing an item, we're circulating items because there's products in the warehouses that need to be delivered and sent out to customers. And there I do find that we can see or we can study those four different relations of alienation. Now, we just start off by studying the division of labor that tells us something about that labor activity. So what's the kind of work that's happening? And once we dive into the warehouse, we really see there's a very clear division of labor. So workers are hired as warehouse associates. So you're hired knowing how to work every part of what I call the circulation line. So instead of a production line, a circulation line. And it's really like a product comes into the warehouse. One person will have to, or many people doing the same thing, will have to unpack, the, unpack these boxes, make sure that this is the item that is described, you know, weigh the item and so forth. That's the person in prep. Then it moves on to someone who's meant to stow this away somewhere in the warehouse. It's based on a chaotic uh, storage system. So basically you're assigned certain shelves and wherever you find space, you would stow it away. Then next you'd have the picker. So once the customer would make an order, you would have to go around the warehouse and pick that item. And then finally, someone would have to pack the item. Now, of course, there's other steps along the circulation line also afterwards, because the package still has to be, uh, you know, put onto the truck. But essentially, the division of labor becomes managed both socially as well as technologically. So socially, meaning because you're in a warehouse, your manager can can see you. Your manager can observe if you're, you know, you're working. Are you taking uh, too many bathroom breaks? Are you talking with your colleague? But at the same time, you use across this division of labor, you use a technological device to connect to the system. You know, it's something that we take for granted how normalized this is in our work relations nowadays, which means essentially that the system can see how long you need for each step. And your manager and the system tells you what is your units per hour rate. So you have a specific number of items that you have to either stow or pick or pack, etc., within the hour. And you have to try to hit rate, make rate um, every hour, basically, of every day so that you could, you know, um, make sure that your productivity is up to par to Amazon standards. So on the one hand, the labor activity is clearly characterized through a division of labor. And here we see the social and technological dimensions coming in. At the same time, interestingly enough, although your relationship to the product is actually, I mean, you're paid by the hour, but you're evaluated based on that piece at the end, right? It's the units per hour rate. Um, because the productivity pressure is so high in the warehouse, um, warehouse workers tend to leave the warehouse, at least the ones I interviewed, saying that they felt like they were carrying that performance pressure along with them because many of them would say, you know, I feel like I'm a cog in the machine. I'm just a part of the Amazon machine to keep it going. Um, and then finally, Amazon has also constructed, as we've seen with uh, a lot of platforms, I think platforms are actually renowned in constructing specific work cultures. Google is also uh, quite famous for it. 
Like we are one community. And in Amazon, one of the, well, a central work uh, or slogan in the warehouse is work hard, have fun and make history. So in a way, you know, this disguise is really the model or the exploitation that happens in the warehouses and how difficult it is to labor such a manual job really day in and day out. I mean, that is, uh, I guess, a kind of familiar story of alienation and exploitation from from the existing uh, literature around Amazon. And one of the things you, you try and do with the framework is say, well, actually, there's agency and there's resistance. And you're not doing this in, in a way that kind of says, oh, actually, you know, <laughs> they are working hard and having fun and making history. You do it in a way that says, actually, you know, there are power and, and resources go, going on here. So what are the sorts of... Um, forms of resistance and where is worker agency in the warehouse? So one thing that we have to say at the beginning of this uh, of this kind of conversation is that Amazon is also famous for being a union buster. So workers who are expressing their agency, who are resisting, maybe in ways that are visible and not visible, they are basically going up against Amazon. Um, and this means that on the one hand, Amazon has, you know, its own strategies to try to undermine labor organization, but that it will also, depending on the country, really attack workers for attempting to resist. The other thing that we have to take into consideration is or are the material conditions that workers are exposed to. So if I'm sort of on a precarious contract or if I'm, you know, I don't have the citizenship of the country where I'm working and really working at Amazon is not just my source of income, but it's you know, the employer on my residence permit, all of this could really affect uh, whether I resist or not, even if I wanted to resist. But despite these conditions, we actually have seen and we continue to see more and more so workers coming together. So although these workers do not have high leverage on the labor market, at least for now, you know, they are easily replaceable because as a warehouse associate, your training is really not that long. They, Amazon does not require any prior work experience. Um, it pretty much accepts anyone who's willing to do that manual work. Um, so your leverage on the labor market isn't very high, but the potential for disruption is incredibly high because, you know, here are the parallels with historical factory work, because if theoretically you could really organize and mobilize a warehouse, a strike could be incredibly effective in really disrupting Amazon's uh, delivery process, especially because Amazon prides itself for how quick its delivery is and how customer centric it is. But once again, if, you know, if we don't see this happening that, you know, it's not like that we're seeing across the news orders are being delayed, but that's not because workers aren't resisting and organizing and striking. In fact, they are, but it's because Amazon has a very decentralized network of warehouses where basically if workers strike in one warehouse, it can shift the order somewhere else. In a country like Germany, for example, it can't just shift the orders uh, to a different warehouse in Germany. It can also do that across the border to a country like Poland because Poland is central for the German market. So that's what I mean with this is what the workers are going up against. But we've seen that workers are organizing, they're unionizing, and they're mobilizing. And we've seen this happen in a, you know, uh, the spectrum is very wide here from very traditional unions, like in Germany, it's the service sector union, Vadi. But, you know, just one year ago, we saw the first warehouse unionizing in the U.S. 
uh, by Amazon Labor Union, a grassroots union that has a very different approach in how it is organizing and mobilizing and developing solidarity amongst workers. And at the same time, because it's a transnational corporation, it gets really fascinating because it means also that the cause, the struggle of these workers is transnational in nature. That's why when workers are going on strike in the UK, Christian Smalls can fly over from the US to the UK because they share that labor struggle and that fight, which I think is quite fascinating um, and we see reflected in the case of Amazon. What kinds of rights they can push for, like a collective bargaining agreement or works council, this depends on the country we're speaking about and the laws that exist in that country. So in a country like Germany, they've been they've been organizing um, and mobilizing since 2013. This is the country with the oldest and first labor struggle at Amazon in the world. But until this day, they haven't been able to achieve the collective bargaining agreement they're fighting for. Um, but they do have works councils, for example. So it really depends on the country we're talking about. And I do think that we live in a moment where that societal power of workers is just, it's growing. You know, you don't even have to, it's not like a few years ago where you would have to explain to people or tell them about the exploitation that happens at warehouses. So many people are aware of that now. I think this was also magnified in light of the COVID-19 pandemic because, um, you know, we saw online uh, online shopping surging, for example, and Amazon ex almost being amongst the winners of the pandemic, if we were to call it so. So we can see that there is a moment growing also around the labor movement at Amazon and that this is also taking shape and expressing itself transnationally. What about then in the context of Mechanical Turk and M Turk, which I guess on the one hand, people might be like much less aware of, you know, you'd mentioned the, the sort of awareness of uh, the warehouse and its problems uh, and also, um, I guess, the moment we're in where, where there are these um, attempts by workers to both, you know, push back and, and to take uh, much more control of, of their labor conditions. How is Mechanical Turk kind of similar and different, both in, in terms of things like alienation, but also in terms of worker solidarity? Yeah, I think Alice Mechanical Turk is a fascinating case of its own because it, there are similarities, but there's also fundamental differences. Now, in terms of how Amazon Mechanical Turk organizes its workers, first of all, that location-based dimension just doesn't exist in the same way that it does in a warehouse. Of course, each worker is located in their own context, in their own country, etc. but the, the relationship or the process of laboring is almost detached from the geographical location. And what I mean by that is I could work from home, I could work from a cafe, as long as I'm connected to the internet via a device. So on Amazon Mechanical Turk, you are web-based. And on the other hand, you are paid per gig, which means you are even more so insecure in the position in which you are in. Because it's not just by doing a task that you will be paid. It could actually be that the requester, so the person who posts the tasks online, rejects the task that, you, that you've completed. So it means maybe you're even denied a wage. Now, what does an Amazon Mechanical Turk worker do? Um, an Amazon Mechanical Turk worker focuses on, or the platform focuses on micro tasks. So for example, labeling some data or you know, watching a video and then the video asks you, oh, how did you feel watching this video? So you really feel like uh, it goes back to really your existence as a human being, which is perhaps reflected 
in the name of tasks because they're called human intelligence tasks. So essentially, you're hired because you're a human being. And you see time and time again how, and scholars have highlighted this and researchers, that this is essentially data that is being used to later um, for, for algorithmic, uh, sorry, for machine learning algorithms to train AI. So, you know, it comes as no surprise that Amazon itself uh, in the past has referred to this as artificial, artificial intelligence, because there's actually a human being behind it. Um, so here you also have a clear division of labor because they're micro tasks and, you know, maybe someone is doing a step that's prior to your step and maybe someone else is doing a step afterwards. But the point is, because it's web based, you have no idea about that. That part of the process is completely invisible to you. You never meet on the job another worker because it's an individual interface and you never meet the requester that essentially hires you because sometimes, you know, they state who they are and sometimes they're anonymous. And you as the worker, you have this anonymized ID. So you too are anonymous. So really the foundation of the employment is completely anonymous. Um, so that's to the labor activity, labor's product. We kind of know that this is used uh, for machine learning algorithms, but we don't know for what exactly. So again, there's something invisible about it that you could feel alienated to that. In terms of species being, work is no longer tied to a specific workplace. You know, it is an example of work making its way um, into the home and really mixing sort of productive and reproductive labor. So there's many uh, stories about how especially women um, would work on Amazon Mechanical Turk while still taking care of children from home. So there's that dimension here as well. And finally, to fellow humans, well, like I said, um, you don't know who they are because you're really distributed across the world. And generally speaking, when it comes to online work, we say that tasks tend to come from the global north and workers tend to be spread across the global south. In the case of Amazon Mechanical Turk, we know that they're mainly in the US and India. So how do we do resistance in this context? How do we get that kind of, you know, worker solidarity? Where does the sense of the kind of power of workers come in? So in the same way that we realize, you know, the internet has come to kind of mediate this labor relationship in a different way, it also really pushes us to think about um, to think about resistance, maybe not so much in traditional terms either. So one point where these workers do share something huge with the Amazon warehouse workers is the role of technology. Um, but technology is really the mediator of the whole employment relationship, meaning surveillance is just happening through algorithmic management at the end of the day. Now, this plays a crucial role in the question of resistance, because where do you even start? It's not like going into a warehouse and then you see your colleague and then after work you, you have a chat or in the break, you have a chat about, you know, how do you feel about work? Where do you even start? First of all, people are spread across the world. And second of all, this workplace power, which we would see more, um, more traditionally through strikes, the idea of strikes is completely thrown outside the window. Because if I decide I'm going to strike, I'm not going to do tasks on Amazon Mechanical Turk, well, someone across the world is going to do this task, especially if it's a high paid task, because it is a source of income at the end of the day. So it pushes us to really think in uh, of resistance beyond just a strike. But also the question is, how do you unionize? 
do you unionize or are there different ways to see collective organization happening? And I really think that as a mechanical Turk, we can learn so much from the case because, you know, it allows us to think of organization and mobilization in additional terms. Because what we see with Amazon Mechanical Turk workers is it's not that they're not resisting or expressing their agency, they're just doing doing it in alternative ways. And a central way they're doing that is through online communities. So almost the same tech that is alienating them on MTurk, they then go back to it, instrumentalize it for their own class interests and essentially to form solidarity. So we have um, Turk Opticon, which was developed by Nili Irani and Six Silberman, which is essentially a way for workers to actually go and rate requesters because until recently, only requesters could rate you as a worker. So kind of like how many stars do you have as an Uber driver? This would be your approval rating and obviously affects your access to other tasks because once you drop under a specific percentage, people or requesters wouldn't hire you, they would exclude you altogether. And now workers could start rating requesters. And that is extremely helpful because, you know, going back to my point about sometimes your wage is denied uh, and your task is rejected, this way workers could almost alert each other to, you know, this is a person that will give you or will, you know, the probability they, they'll pay your wage is incredibly high, whereas this is a requester that might actually reject your task. So this way you could really navigate more towards the ones that would pay your task. At the same time, we see Reddit being an extremely, um, like on the one hand, organic way of organizing, but also one that is extremely central to workers because, you know, they provide or they ask questions on Reddit and they give each other tips on how to best navigate MTurk. So if I want to start working on MTurk today, where do I start and what are you know, what are the tips and tricks to increase the chances that I can find those tasks that don't pay me one cent, but maybe pay me $5 because the spectrum of the payment is extremely wide on MTurk as well. So I would say that this is a form of collective organization and it is a space where they form solidarity with one another because workers, they could see each other as competition, right? Because if I don't do the task, someone else will. But in fact, they're actually giving each other advice on, you know, this is what I learned, and this is how it could be helpful for you. We started with this idea that like Amazon is, you know, such a, a perfect case study for understanding not just the platform economy, actually, but loads of things about contemporary uh, work and contemporary society. Where does this fit in terms of the rest of the platform economy? And, and I guess actually maybe in terms of kind of future trends um, for, for platforms and, and workers. What I, I suppose would you say were the kind of three or four like key lessons um, from Amazon, for, from the book for um, the rest of platforms and the rest of the economy? So I think going back to how, uh, or the two main characteristics by which I define platforms, namely the nature of the platform being location-based or web-based and the nature of work being either you're paid a traditional time wage or a gig wage, you know, essentially these four dimensions are represented through these two Amazon case studies. And by studying then alienation as well as agency um, and studying how those two dimensions express themselves, we can almost identify how, you know, what is the role here of gig wage and what is the role here of location-based and so forth. And I would say, 
on the one hand, what we see is there's a clear, you know, the division of labor is absolutely clear in the platform economy. We can see that the platform economy predominantly uh, consists of low wage work because the gig economy has just flooded the platform economy. Um, this is not to say that traditional time wage doesn't exist, right? We have Amazon Web Services, we have Google, etc. But it just highlights that this will also have an effect on the leverage that workers have in their struggles. And in fact, emphasizes that, you know, it would be wonderful to see that solidarity across platforms. And I've hinted at a few instances in the book where we see this happening, you know, where Amazon Web Service workers could potentially support the Amazon warehouses workers in their struggle. But there's also a lot of opportunities here and potentials for that cross-solidarity happening. Um, we see that algorithmic management is absolutely central to the labor process. And I think this is really dangerous because, you know, other players in the economy outside of the platform economy are looking to the platform economy for that. They are forerunners in these trends. But we also see them reproducing trends on the labor market like precarity. You know, platforms didn't invent precarity um and but we've seen really a deregulation of the labor market the formal labor market happening and in a way platforms are reproducing that um so i would say that through platforms we could really see how they're defining producing but also reproducing trends but at the same time you know there's also a conversation to be had about the labor movement because if we take a look at workers organizing nowadays you know, it's uh, it's so wonderful to see how workers across the world, really across platforms are, are striking or are finding alternative and creative ways to strike. So I think that the platform economy is a great example and way to study the contemporary labor movement, you know, also showing dimensions of intersectionality where people, you know, um, people will come together on the basis of that shared experience because of their race, of their sex, of their gender. Um, and that that is really central to the labor movement, not just in the platform economy, but also more generally. I mean, the book, that's just like a couple of hints of, of why the book is important and um, a couple of um, sort of takeaways from, from the book. But there's loads sort of more going on with, with the book. And it seems almost a bit kind of cruel to say, well, what are you working on next, given both, I think, um, the amount of rich material that's in the book. But also, as, as you've suggested, the, the whole range of different research agendas that could uh, be applied to things like contemporary labor movement studies, um, but also uh, studies of, of, of work um, and the economy. So what does come next? Uh, is there a you know sort of similar research project in uh, this area? Or are you sort of thinking, you know, you've, you've had sort of quite enough of Amazon for a while um, and would like to do something completely different? You know, for now, I think it's uh, it's a bit difficult to walk away from Amazon, considering that there's there's just so much going on, right? There's just so much going on in its own developments, and the examples and cases of workers organizing around the world just seem to really grow. And uh, obviously, I'm very invested in that. Um, I think, you know, one interest that will continue and does continue is. Um, to what extent we really do see then these these trends rep being reproduced elsewhere in the economy. Um, I think also to study more 
what goes on more and more outside even of the global north. So what happens when Amazon or platforms break into, and there's research being done about that, but this is a field of interest once we see that the informal labor market is actually much larger than the formal labor market and how that then interacts with all of these dimensions. But I think the central um, field of interest is really the labor movement and really the intersectional dimensions of the labor movement because it's not like uh, a few decades ago where that image of the white male labor movement but really we see that across the world with amazon as an example here where um you know the workers leading the movement are workers of color they are migrant workers and sometimes it can be that they actually came to the country as refugees and now they're leading that labor movement and i find that incredibly fascinating and important to underline um you know that agency and resistance always continues